0: Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor of Music Michael Figueroa. In our conversation, Professor Figueroa discusses his current project on music and racial identity formation in Arab-American communities post-9-11. So Mike, thank you for joining me today and talking a little bit about your work. Uh, It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So if you could to start out, could you uh, just give us a snapshot of what you work on as a music professor at the University of North Carolina?
1: Yeah, well, uh, most of my work examines the intersections of music, politics, and religion in the Middle East region and its diasporic communities around the world, particularly in the US. And so my teaching, uh, at UNC tends to fall in those areas and broaden out from there. So I do a lot of the survey courses in like intro to world music um, and things like that. But I also, I teach more focused courses on, um, on the region or on aspects, theoretical aspects of that work. My research, um, examined, like channels this, this broad interest in music politics and religion into more focused projects. My first book, for example, which is um, now under contract with Oxford University Press examines uh, how musicians shaped um, basically uh, the territorial imaginary of uh, Zionism across the 20th century. So looking at songs and musical discourse about the city of Jerusalem specifically. Um, And that brings together a whole host of things, you know, um, theology, uh, modern Hebrew literature, um, aesthetics, political ideology, and and lots of other things, and then it's all through using music as a point of entry. Can you
0: define territorial imaginary?
1: So I I should probably walk it back a little because I think that um, you know Lacanian scholars would contest my use of imaginary when I'm not really talking about you know psychoanalytic issues, but um, imagination might be better. Just how people I look at geography in the way that, you know, um, cultural geographers talk about it uh, as not only, uh, yes, like space is, um, is material, it is lived in, right? Um, yeah. It is used, uh, but it's also conceived, right? And it's also part of how, how people construct their worldviews. Uh, and map their values onto space and, and the slippage between these different, and there are lots of different scholars have modeled these things um, with different kinds of phrasings and terms and different nuances. But in the end um, what people imagine space to be and how they use it or what they do with it mm-hmm. um, like intersects in uh, really profound ways all over the world. And I took the opportunity to look at this in Jerusalem because is particularly conspicuous as a multicultural city that lies at the center of, um, you know, all monotheistic imaginaries, essentially. Right. If there's imaginary again. I should yeah. probably, think no, that's, a, a okay.
0: that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> no problem. And could you give the, uh, the audience, can we talk a little bit about your current book project, what you're working on right now?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm shortly turning in the revisions to the first book, and I've already, the last three years or so, I've I began a new research project looking at something very different. It still brings together music, politics, and religion, but it's closer to home uh, in two ways. One is that it's the field sites are in the U.S., um, but the second is that it connects with my own personal biography and experience, and that is looking at um, race consciousness among Arab Americans in the post-9/11 world, um, and um, I, I look at how musicians are shaping that discourse um, here through their through actual musical content, right? So people singing or rapping or or playing about these things, to how they're talking about them outside of musical context, to how. Uh, musical events serve as sites for working out these ideas of identity and community through a specifically racialized lens.
0: Yeah. So what, who, who are some of the artists that we're talking about that you're, you're looking at, or the, the music genres or, or the events that you spoke of?
1: Yeah. So, um, uh, some of the artists are more prominent. Some of them are, are working more locally. Uh, and I sort of don't distinguish between those, um, at this point in my research. Um, but, um, you know, as one example of someone who's been to UNC and performed here a couple of years ago, Omar Offendam okay. um, is one of my major contacts who, who is quite active in speaking on racial issues in music and also using his platform through, um, you know, uh, trying to mobilize his social media fan base, things like this. Um, and um, to more, so I also, my person, you know, I you ask who the people are. Many of them are musicians. Many of them are are people who may be musicians, but who are more active in the role as organizers. For example, um, the uh, yellow Punk Festival, and uh, it's an organization uh, in Philadelphia, and they put on an annual festival, and that's been a really important field site for me. I make a sort of a pilgrimage. There each fall um, to attend the festivities and to have conversations with people, including the organizer, uh, organizers, but also the the participants. Um, and um, and I've met a lot of musicians who I've developed relationships with through attending those kinds of events, right? And so, like our, you know, Yellow Punk sort of catalyzed these relationships with with musicians um, who I now um, carry on the conversations with you know, long after you know the sort of the sounds stopped reverberating around Johnny Brenda's <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, which is the the venue in Philadelphia where this is always okay. held and um and um our relationships have developed from there. So um Lovely. so it's really mul- it's a multi-sided um multi-dimensional project in that way.
0: So if you're going to these uh sites like where you're studying and interviewing these musicians, are is there are there certain I guess, geographic hotspots or certain locations that you've had to kind of concentrate in, or is it all over the nation and are there challenges in, in finding these geographies or these, these spots where you can access the, the, the music or the musicians and find these local local organizers and musicians?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, it is a translocal phenomenon. Um, Mm -hmm. although, you know, um, the fact is that the vast majority of arab americans live in uh concentrated in urban centers yeah
0: um,
1: this is borne out in the in the demographic research too uh okay. i i can confirm that but it's it's not just like a oh i like going to cities yeah yeah although i do um <laughs> but um unsurprisingly the biggest hotspots are the areas with the you know highest concentrations of of arabs Uh, in the US and, you know, um, Los Angeles and Southern California, more generally, um, the Detroit Dearborn area, Chicago has been a really important site, even though the numbers aren't quite as high as LA or Detroit or, or New York, which is another place. Okay. Uh, And finally, Philadelphia. So um, and, um, you know, I guess it, it may seem obvious to point this out, but I think in places where there are large concentrations and and social and family networks of Arabs, there generally has been, and this is a preliminary finding. So, I, you know, it's not something I would publish just yet, but there, mm-hmm. as it, there really seems to be a much stronger degree of, of race consciousness of, of talking about oneself, um, in those terms yeah. than there has been in areas like where my family, my Arab family is from in Florida, where, you know, um, where we were sort of integrated into uh, wider communities with relationships with people, you know, across different um, racial divides, if you, uh, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the language of race seems more strongly resonant in, in these uh, concentrated urban areas. That's what I'm finding so far, but this could also be uh, a temporal bias because, you know, I, I came up in, for example, Florida, I'm using anecdote rather than evidence now, but before 9-11, basically, yeah, and, right. and um, it's not that that event is the only significant historical factor, but we have been racialized in very explicit terms, um, and this has been built into, you know, um, the structures of state violence and, and surveillance uh, in that time, too. And so I think, you know, one of the hypotheses, and I know humanities scholars, we generally don't work on hypothesis, but one of my hypotheses is that um, this the language of race has become more and more um, appealing and widespread among Arab Americans uh, since 9-11, precisely because we have been racialized as people of color in more pronounced ways than we were before.
0: So in your initial findings, have you is there anything... You know, despite this hypothesis that's been a little bit surprising or outside of your expectations as you, as you start this research?
1: So one of the things that's been really, if not surprising, then at least exciting and affirming uh, and meaningful is that there's really a true diversity of, of perspective and experience um, among people who call themselves Arab Americans or who are called Arab Americans um, and people's ideas about race and identity um, are unsurprisingly very much affected by, you know, their family migration histories, um, the places from which they migrated. So I guess you'd call that national origin um, by religious identity and belief. You know, I, I just gave a, a talk in London, um, uh, geez, right before. Covid really took over um, our continent. It was it was starting to pick up there in the UK at that point in February. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. About um, a musician I'm working with who is Syrian American, um, who is Jewish. Um, so his family comes from the long, like the really um, deeply established Jewish community in, in Aleppo, uh, the mm-hmm. northern city in Syria. Yeah, um, who have their own religious liturgy that's very different from from other Jewish traditions, um, especially those that are sort of more strongly represented in the US from Ashkenazi traditions from across Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, it it led me into this into really interesting questions about whether, you know, whether Jews from the Middle East who now reside in the US um, are part of this group or not, or should be considered part of this group aspirationally, you know, in terms of building political alliances or whether they or or want to be considered differently. And um, it brought in some of my research on Israeli-Palestinian politics because those affect how you know, Jews and Muslims and Christians who share, like a, let's say, a, a common Syrian ancestry may or may not agree with one another uh, or identify yeah. with one another. And so mm-hmm. you know, that's one example of someone who who can legitimately claim Roots in the Arab world and even Arab identity, even if they don't always talk about it that way, um, bring them into the conversation to complicate what might be an easy narrative of Arabs are oppressed by the post-9/11 surveillance regime, by wars mm-hmm. in the Middle East, and therefore we're all part of the same group. When right. uh, reality, we all experience these things in really complicated ways, and so that raises the question, which I'm not prepared to sort of answer right now. Yeah. Of whether we constitute a singular collective identity that contains within it contradictions and diversity, or whether, you know, um, a new kind of formulation is more, um, uh, intellectually and politically appropriate.
0: Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. I I got a couple more questions, if that's okay. Um, first of all, I I just want to talk a little bit about your, uh, focus in music and musicology. What inspired that, that, um, I guess that avenue of your investigation or your, your scholarly career?
1: That's a great question uh, because a lot of these research questions I've been articulating could be studied from other perspectives too, right? Yes. So mm-hmm. um, personally, I'm personally invested in music um, as uh, a career um, in musicology and ethnomusicology as a career because uh, it's the center of my life. I grew up in a musical household uh, my parents weren't always, you know, making music, but they were always listening to music, mm-hmm. um, and it's always just been part of how I interact with the world. It's been the channel through which I've, or it's been the way I've, I've sort of channeled the larger questions about life. You know, even as a kid, before thinking about an academic career and all that kind of stuff, um, I thought about life in terms of of interventions that musicians have made into those bigger issues. Um, my, uh, my first musical instrument ever uh, sitting behind me, a drum set um, oh, that I got good. when I played in middle school bands. And um, my dad is a lifelong guitarist. And so he I, I eventually uh, got into, into um, performance really that way. And I entered um, undergrad intending to be a concert classical guitarist. Okay. Um, but I quickly learned that I was much more interested in my other classes, my, my more traditional academic classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I discovered uh, that ethnomusicology was a thing that existed uh, and a, a way of manifesting um, this like commitment to, to music uh, in, you know, studying culture, studying social relations, et cetera, right? Um, I switched gears and threw myself into that completely right after I think immediately, you know, at the end of my first year of, of undergrad and I never looked back. So, um, so yeah, it comes down to uh, wanting to, um, wanting to center music in my scholarly endeavors, but also to be sort of wantonly interdisciplinary because it takes you to so many different places, you know, if um, yeah if you do it, if you do it right. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and to build relation, I get to build relationships with scholars all over the institution also, because through my area studies connections, through, you know, methodological commonalities, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it puts me in the place where I feel I need to be to understand these issues from my perspective, which is again, at its center a musical perspective.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's great. And this is a, this is a question we ask most of our guests, what's a book that changed your life?
1: So this is a hard question to answer because um, I think, you know, any real intellectual has had their life changed by books many times over. Um, I'll go with a, a recent example, which is the first sort of modern Arab American novel that I have read. It's not the first Arab American novel, but one, the first one that I read. Mm-hmm. uh which is called Lebanese Blonde by Joseph Geha who is um a, a really prominent Arab American uh writer who's uh based in Toledo, Ohio. Okay. Um and it changed my life uh in the sense that it was the first novelistic like cultural representation in a long time that I've identified with. Certainly on the on the lines of just the intimate parts of being Arab and American from, you know, really sort of uh, poetic um, descriptions of eating certain foods in certain relatives' houses to grappling with um, the, uh, with the dissonances that arise uh, when, you know, Um, sort of like if you will old world and new world kind of like influences collide in terms and they're embodied by certain people in the novel as well Mm -hmm. Um, to the way that he deals with romance and 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 sort of interracial or intercommunal romance uh, in the novel so for me you know I've read other books that have been uh, more dramatic even uh, I hope he doesn't listen to this but even maybe more you know, expertly written or, right. or more, that are more literary in character for whatever that, that might mean to different people. But for me, it just, it just hit in a way that really transformed my thinking about what, how, how writing can articulate Arab American identity. And I hope that, you know, in my own research, I'll be able to capture some of that magic in my own way, even in a very different medium of academic writing. Just Wolf. the intimacies that, mm-hmm. that are present yeah. um, mm-hmm. really meant a lot to me because it wasn't about, the, the book wasn't about on its face Air American identity and making a statement about it. It was about capturing this character's experiences in a really beautiful way.
0: Well, thank you for that. Thanks for sharing that. And um, also thank you for your time. I really enjoy the conversation.
1: Yeah, same here. I uh, hope everyone stays safe out there. Um, and stays focused on the things that matter to them.
0: Yes. All right. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at iah_underscore_unc. underscore UNC.